gun Ramos looking like he's got one more good run Sips a little shaky But his heart is still true Oh how that dog loves hunting with me and you Sporting dog adventures run The Sporting Dog Adventures podcast is proudly brought to you by Soggy Acres Retrievers. Remember, everyone deserves a Soggy Dog. Hey, welcome back to the Sporting Dog Adventures podcast. I've got a great podcast for everyone today. We're going to talk about having your male Labrador Retriever be a stud dog. We're going to talk about choke choice uh, for when you're out hunting for our hunting tip. And the last thing we're going to talk about during our training is when to put a vest on your dog. So let's first jump into a question I get quite commonly and quite often, which is I want my dog to potentially be a stud dog. And people will contact me and say, I would like you to use my dog because my dog is a great dog. So my first question to them is always, what would your fee be? And most of the time, it's, I want one puppy. Then my question is, do you have your uh, health clearances? Generally speaking, 99% of the people say, which clearances would you need? Because they don't know. And the last thing I ask is, do you have titles on your dog? And I always get the same thing, which is, my dog has a great pedigree and is a great hunting dog. So, Let's look at these from the top. As far as a stud fee, people will ask about or say they want a puppy because basically they love their dog, which I totally get, and they want to get a puppy out of their dog. So if you take a puppy as a stud fee, we sell our puppies for $1,700. I can breed to generally almost any dog in the country, not all, but most, for $1,700 or under, most stud fees for good solid dogs are around six dollars to $800. So right there, the stud fee is astronomical. And as far as my business, I would not do that because, again, it's a business. You're looking at making decisions so that you can make money. There's not as much money as people think in the dog world. It's, it's a very tight business when you have, when you add in all of the dog health care and maintenance and all of that good stuff. So your stud fee, if you're going to try to breed your dog, should always be in that $600 to $800 range, depending on what you have for titles on the dog. The next thing you look at is people don't understand that to get a dog to the point where you can breed them, male or female, there are a number of steps you take to make sure that they are sound physically so that they do not have things that will get passed on genetically to the puppies, which could, one, cause client heartbreak because you never want to have a dog that has health issues where a client would have to put the dog down. And two, just overall care for the dog. You don't want to see a dog that is dealing with these health issues that in many ways can be mitigated or lessened greatly, 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 or completely avoided. So in Labrador Retrievers, and all breeds have tests that you can do, but in Labrador Retrievers, the minimum test you're going to want to get is 
If you want a stud dog, you're going to want to get the hips checked so that you have an OFA good or above rating. You're going to want to get the elbows checked so that you have a normal rating. And these are for hip dysplasia and elbow dysplasia. You are going to want to go to a canine ophthalmologist and get an OFA clearance on the dog's eyes so that it shows that the eyes are free of genetic defects. And these range from cataracts to retinal folds to uh, several other items that uh, quite honestly I can't think of right now. But there's a, a myriad of things that vets look at uh, when they dilate the dog's eyes and look to make sure that they do not have any genetic issues that will be passed on to puppies. You are also going to want to get the dog's tested for exercise-induced collapse and canine neuromyopathy if the parents weren't tested. So cleared by parentage, you'll see that on my website and several other people's websites. That is where both parents were clear of exercise-induced collapse and canine neuromyopathy. That means that the puppies cannot have it. So you want to make sure that you have all of these clearances at a minimum. And with EIC and CNM, some will tell you that your dog can be a uh, carrier but not affected and people will breed to your dogs. That is all about the breeding program. We only breed to males that are completely clear. Uh, we do not breed to carriers. There is a thought process out there that this uh, does not harm the breed, which I totally get. It's it's not a an affected dog, but my thought is if I can have my lines clear, why wouldn't I do that when there are so many great dogs to choose from? So that would be your health clearances at a minimum that you'd want to do. And you cannot do your hip and elbow clearances until after the dog has reached two years of age. That is when you would get your, your certification, you get a number, and you get a uh, uh, document from the Orthopedic Foundation for Animals signifying that your dog has been cleared of those things. So next, let's look at does your dog have any titles? And this is the big one because everyone loves their dogs and many people have great pedigrees on their dogs. That doesn't mean that that would be a dog that you should want to breed or someone else would want to breed too. And you have to look at it on several levels. One being the if you're selling a puppy or you have a breeding program, you want to make sure that the stock you are used you're using is proven on your male side. Now, some kennels will say you have to have titles on both the female and the male. I totally understand that. We used to run our females in hunt tests, but we grew to the point where we're placing our dogs at people's homes and it's just not feasible for us to run them in a hunt test. But at the same time, I've been doing this since 1998, and I bring the dogs back and run them through a battery of uh, tests to make sure that they do have all of the natural abilities and drives and trainability uh, that I would want for my, my clients, as well as quality temperament. So as far as having a stud dog as a male, it is a minimum that I am going to want a dog that is going to have the HRCH title or an MH title. The HRCH title is the Hunter Retriever Champion, and that is through the HRC. The MH title is Master Hunter, and that is through the AKC. With both of these titles, you are talking about the dog having to be trained by yourself or by a professional trainer for a number of years to get to those levels. 
And then you are looking at a number of tests that the dog would have to run to get to to get those 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 titles. To give you an idea, to buy a dog with one of those titles, you are looking at anywhere between probably seven thousand to ten thousand dollars if you're going to purchase a dog that was of age and had those titles on it. If you are going to pay a uh, professional trainer, you're probably looking at 18 months at least on a professional trainer uh, training the dog. And that is going to run you anywhere from $600 to probably $900 a month for the training. So you're talking about a substantial investment here where it is going to be a large cost for you to either purchase the dog when it has those titles or have a pro run those run the uh, run the dog for you to put those titles on or a substantial commitment of time by yourself to not only train the dog but then spend weekend after weekend running to tests all over uh, the area where you're at i'm not dissuading you from this but just being realistic with it if you look at it from a perspective of a person that owns a really nice female or bitch line, they're going to look and go, if I can breed to someone else that has a finish title or a master title for the same cost, why would I pick a dog that is untitled? One, you're not getting a proven dog, even though someone will tell you that their dog is the greatest hunting dog and has a great pedigree. I get that. We love our dogs. But if I have someone that can tell me my dog is a great hunting dog and a great pet, and they have this title, that makes the puppies more marketable. That makes the puppies worth more. So not only are you potentially paying the same stud fee for a dog without a title, but you're more than likely having to sell your puppies for several hundred dollars less. So if you have a litter of 10 and you're only selling the dogs for, and you're selling the dogs for two puppies for $200 less, you're talking a $2,000 loss as a business. It only makes sense that you're going to choose the dogs that have those titles. Does that mean that no one will ever breed your dog? No. People will breed your dog because there's always a friend that wants to uh, wants to have their dog bred and will take your dog because they think it's a it's easy, it's convenient. More than likely, they don't need to have any health clearances. That is your backyard breeding. It is something that I try to educate people so that we avoid that. I'm not against people breeding their dogs, but I just want people to make sure that they are they have a sound dog that they're breeding so that bad genetic issues don't happen in the future so that I get less calls from people that want to buy a dog from us because last time I bought a dog from someone and it had all these issues. Now, the last thing you want to look at is the pedigree in your dog. And this was tough for me because having a breeding program, I actually had a great pedigree on my first dog. And I had to learn myself that I needed genetic variation. I needed other pedigrees. And looking at other pedigrees, I found pedigrees at the same level or higher than mine so that I could build different lines in my kennel. When you look at your pedigree, if you're thinking of breeding your dog, you need to have at least half of those dogs with titles on them of that HRCH, MH, FC, or a QAA. If you don't have that, again, it comes down to people wanting to breed to your dog. If I look at a pedigree and it has very few title dogs, it doesn't mean that that dog is not a good dog. It 
does mean that I can't show it to a client and say, look at all of the past generations. These dogs are very talented. It's generation after generation of talented dogs. And that is why you want to buy a puppy from me. Easiest way I can explain it to people when they're looking at puppies is if you have two parents and they both have pedigrees that have a ton of titles in them, it is the same as looking at two professional athletes having a child and expecting that child to hopefully be a professional athlete, as opposed to myself and my wife, Kate, having a child. And we are not professional athletes and thinking, I want my kid to play in the NFL, the NBA, or the Major League Baseball. It is probably not going to happen from a genetic standpoint. So you have to look at that from your other standpoint as far as as far as uh, your own dog and breeding. These are just a few things, and I'll touch back on this probably every couple of months, but just a few things that I try to email people. And I will straight up say in the email, this is not to tell you not to breed your dog, but this is what you should and need to do for someone to consider it. You want to make sure that you're following the course that I just put out because at that point, then you have a dog that is a nice stud dog. Then you have a dog that is going to produce great puppies. And then you have a stud dog that the person that owns the female or bitch can market as having bred to them. So I hope that helps you. Stay tuned next as we're going to talk about when the perfect time or the proper time is to get that dog vest on your dog during the hunt. All that after this. This portion of the podcast is proudly brought to you by Boucher Automotive in Janesville, Wisconsin. So duck season is here. We've got our dog. We're hunting waterfowl. It's in water. So we're not field hunting. We're talking about water hunting and when to put a vest on a dog so that your dog is healthy and safe. My look at it is what has your weather been so that we know what the water temperature is. Water temperature has a lot to do with it because when the dog is out there, especially if they are on multiple retrieves or a longer blind retrieve or marked retrieve, that is when they are going to be sapped of their strength, energy, and health by the cold of the water. The other thing you need to look at is what is the air temperature? Of course, these all seem like simple things, but I've hunted on days where the air temperature was 50-55, but it had been extremely cold for about a month, where I've put a uh, dog vest on the dog. I've also hunted at times when it is early season, like September in Wisconsin, and the water temperatures probably are pushing 60 to 65 degrees, and maybe on that day it was 40 degrees in the morning, and I didn't run a vest on my dog. Now, a lot of it comes down to, I make sure the dog is not in the water. You want them to be on a dry surface. I actually have my dog blinds so that they either have a mesh bottom or I've actually drilled holes in the bottom so that the water drains. So again, the dog's not sitting in that water and you want to make sure that uh, your vest fits. <laughs> Don't have the first time you put a vest on the dog uh, be uh, before the hunt. Make sure that the dog hasn't gained weight. Make sure the vest is properly fitted. 
I run into this all the time because I have multiple dogs, so I have to have multiple vests. You don't want a vest that is too big that is going to rub on the dog because you can get uh, where they get uh, abrasions and irritations on their legs. And you also want to make sure that the vest is snug enough so that it is keeping their body heat in. Vests are also used occasionally depending on what you're hunting in. If people are hunting where there is a lot of sticks, deadfalls, things the dogs to, uh, could get poked on, um, people were on vests on them. But generally, I'm going by water temperature. I am going by air temperature. And I'm using some common sense on when to put that onto my dog. So far, we are in mid-October and I have not run a vest on my dog. I don't know if we're going to a waterfall hunt uh, the second weekend here in October. Uh, it's youth deer season. If I do, with what the air temperatures have been and what the weather has been, I will not run a vest on my dog. But the following weekend, they're calling for high temperatures in the 45 to 50 degree range. It will have been fairly cold all week, so it will start to chill that water temperature down. Not much, but with the air temperature, I will run uh, a vest on my dogs because in the morning it's going to be probably between 30 and 34 degrees. So I hope that helps. Hope that keeps your dog safe. The favorite time of year is here for all of us. Get out there, get in the field, and enjoy it. Take care. Next, we're going to talk about the choke style that you're going to use in the field on our hunting tip. Stay tuned for that after this. This part of the podcast is brought to you proudly by Mech Outdoors. So it's time to pick our choke. And this is something that people will debate all the time. Do you do improved cylinder, modified, full choke, extended range choke? It is, I guess, in the eye of the beholder. One thing that I've used to always put me at an advantage on being in the field is I like using a high-end shot shell. There's no secret that we were sponsored by Heavy Shot uh, for many years. Um, I will use a high-end Heavy Shot shell in the field because I have a mountain of the stuff left from, from uh, filming. And with that, I will use probably an improved cylinder about 80% of the time. What I have seen is that a lot of it comes down to the shot shell that you have. And if you have a, one of these shot shells that's putting more pellets on target, the pellets are hitting harder at a distance, you can get away with having a larger pattern so that you're knocking down more birds. Now, with the spots that I hunt here in Wisconsin, I do have several areas where I am going to run a more extended range type choke or a modified or a modified choke just because of the fact that I have certain spots we hunt where the birds just don't finish closely. But you have to balance that with we have we had a choke in a uh, we took a gun along because we wanted to be able to have a choke that was a, a more full choke when the birds were out farther and when the birds came in we had a group of teal come in and they were at like 10 feet and I clean missed. Probably a good thing because if I would have hit him with that choke, it would have uh, completely destroyed him. But it's trying to find that balance of what duck you're, you're hunting, where the birds are going to finish, and uh, I guess what shot shell you're using. If I am hunting a new spot, 
I will hunt a external choke that is a medium range. And then I'll have my extended range choke in my bag so I can swap out chokes quite fast. I don't even need to use um, uh, need to use a wrench. I can actually grab them with my hand and spin them out. I will always start with as open a pattern as I can. And then if the birds are working more difficult, I will switch to that tighter pattern so that I get more distance. So I hope that helps. Get out there. Get in the field. Send us some pictures to the uh, Sporting Dog Adventures uh, Facebook page so that we can see how your hunts are going. Make sure your dog is in that picture. Thank you so much for listening to this show. Have a great day and God bless. Sporting Dog Adventures, run, boy, run. Everything you need is here under the sun.